Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallek. In today's program, we learn more about restoring social sustainability from eco-architect and village builder Mark Lakeman of Planet Repair, inspired by his expeditions into indigenous communities to reconnect isolated Americans by implementing neighborhood placemaking projects. That's coming up in part four of his conversation with WFHB environmental correspondent Zero Rose. And now for your environmental reports. The Michigan Senate voted to require that all of the state's energy come from sources that do not emit climate warming gases by 2040. Quote, the legislation is a major milestone in ongoing efforts to ensure a greener and more environmentally conscious Michigan, end quote, said Senator Sean McCann, Democrat of Kalamazoo and chair of the Senate Energy and Environment Committee. Quote, these policies will safeguard public health and better protect our environment now and for future generations, and my colleagues and I will continue to work to address the climate crisis and combating the harmful pollution that plagues our farms, air, and Great Lakes. End quote. Senate Bill 271 sets a target for clean energy future. Those targets include establishing a 100% clean energy standard set to be achieved by 2040 and an 80% clean energy standard by 2035. The main driver of the extinction of plant and wildlife species around the world is habitat loss. In the U.S. alone, approximately 650 species have become extinct or are missing in action, according to the Center for Biological Diversity. This week, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, USFWS, removed 21 species from the Endangered Species Act, ESA's, list of threatened and endangered species due to extinction. Delisting was based on the best available science for each species, a press release from USFWS said. The newly delisted 21 species emphasize the ESA's importance in trying to protect species before their declines become irreversible. Human activity is the number one driver of species decline and extinction due to habitat loss, overuse, invasive species, and diseases. Quote, federal protection came too late to reverse these species decline, and it's a wake-up call on the importance of conserving imperiled species before it's too late. End quote, said USFWS Director Martha Williams in the USFWS press release. As the world population and temperatures rise, the pace of extinctions will increase. So far, attempts to halt climate change have fallen way short. By 2100, we may be losing 1,000 species per year. 
E.O. Wilson, the Dean of American Biologists, predicted the current mass extinction would cause one million plants and animals to go extinct. A group of concerned residents in Tippecanoe, Warren, Boone, Clinton, and Montgomery counties in Indiana have banded together regarding a plan by the Indiana Economic Development Committee, or IEDC, to push piping up to 100 million gallons of water per day from the Taze Aquifer in Tippecanoe County to their upcoming Limitless Exploration Advanced Pace, or LEAP, Industrial District in Lebanon, Indiana, with plans to use and forward the water to Indianapolis. The IEDC is a government-funded private entity. The plan, which included Governor Holcomb, has not had a single environmental impact study completed. At a meeting on September 28th, the IEDC's contracted hydrologist presented data from only four days of testing during the wettest part of the year. Residents reported sulfurous water, gravel in their wells, and problems with their filters. No study was done regarding the flora and fauna that might be dependent on the aquifer. The water grab will have neg negative effects on both residents of Indiana and Illinois and their natural resources. At this time, there is no water protection laws in place in the state of Indiana. Members of the group of concerned citizens are asking other residents in Indiana to pressure the, uh, the Indiana DNR and the EPA for more testing. Now that the Arctic Ocean is navigable during the summer months, how much traffic is there? The majority of ships, 41%, entering the Arctic are commercial fishing vessels. Other types of ships that commonly navigate in the region include bolt carriers, icebreakers, and research vessels. Growing Arctic marine tourism also has its share. 73 cruise ships sailed in Arctic waters in 2019. Arctic coastal communities that are used to largely untrafficked waters are likely to experience major changes as shipping in the Arctic increases. As shipping increases, it may interfere with communities' subsistence harvesting of fish and marine mammals, foul their coastlines if they spill fuel or other toxic substances, or impose a heavy burden upon their limited search and rescue and response capabilities in the event of an accident. There is an urgent need to protect the Arctic. As cold water fish, such as cod, move out of the Gulf of Maine, it is critical that sanctuaries are in place to receive them. Given that global warming will be with us for centuries, cold water species will need the Arctic. The New York Times reports that as winter is over and the southern hemisphere and sea ice around Antarctica has likely expanded as much as it's going to for 2023, according to the National Snow and Ice Data Center. Antarctic sea ice reached its lowest peak by a wide margin for any year since 1979, when the continuous satellite record began. Quote, the ice this year is so far out of the range of all of the other years that it's really an exceptional year, end quote, said Ariane Purich, Purich, a climate scientist at Monash University in Australia. Antarctica has ice both on land and a massive continental ice sheet. The icebergs that break off from the big glaciers help to protect the main mass from melting. Less sea ice could mean that the continental ice sheet melts and breaks faster, contributing to a faster sea level rise around the world. That sea ice supports a whole ecosystem of wildlife, including both 
Adeli, and emperor penguins. Last year, several emperor penguins suffered a widespread loss of their chicks when the ice broke up early. What will happen during the com coming summer if the so-called Doomsday Glacier, an Antarctic glacier that buffers warming seas from the large Antarctic ice sheet, melts much faster than predicted? Officially called the Thwaites Glacier, it's monitored closely by researchers. When it breaks free, it could be catastrophic for the planet. Should the Thwaites, Thwaites, Thwaites. Glacier and its surrounding ice melt basins melt, it could raise sea levels by anywhere from 3 to 10 feet. This combined with the Florida-sized glacier's buffering role in the ocean has given it its apocalyptic doomsday nickname. There's nothing we can do at this point to prevent the Thwaites from breaking free. It's too late. It may not break free this summer, but the outcome is certain. And now we turn to Zero Rose as he explores the origins of the first little free library and the self-service solar-powered tea station that formed the initial components of the revolutionary socio-cultural movement that became Portland's City Repair Project, which is now branching out into communities all across the country. People are amazed by, enthralled by, when they come across images of these uh, intersections that you guys have taken over. You paint like a big sunflower or some kind of mural in the street. Of course, you have events and festivals around it. And you, similarly with the unhoused situation, you call upon the, the different resources and skill sets that people have in the region and you met resistance by certain people in the neighborhood and the authorities, I believe the police were, were sicked on you and then they were going to start fining you and stuff. Tell people about where you went from being a total renegade thing to a, a sort of a sanctioned operation. Well, this is one of the coolest bits of the story at the very beginning. Um, we started to do all these wonderful things in public space. I played a big part in getting that going because I had just come back from seven years of traveling to visit different indigenous villages around the world. And when I came back to my own neighborhood, I was like, you know, for, for the first time in seven years, I was in a place where people weren't talking to each other. And because I had been an architect, I was like, oh my God, I see the powers of zoning laws that force us all to leave where we live at the start of the day to go somewhere else. Well, unlike all the villages that I had been in, where people live and work in the same place because nobody zones them and forces them or tells them you can't create livelihood right where you live. You have to go elsewhere and work for someone else. So when I came back, I'd also been interacting with Elk River who had explained, you know, what it's like to be an indigenous person as part of a culture that's thousands of years old and be attacked by these crazy people who are like, in the name of God, we will take your land and subdue you. Um, What's it like to be on the receiving end of that? And then see these people are really, they really are crazy. And uh, they're being made crazy and they're instituting craziness into the places that they're taking. So I, I was helped to get a lot of perspective. And in my own neighborhood where I had grown up, I didn't care to talk to anybody, but I had just been out traveling and among all these people that have common stories and common songs and common 
architecture and, and gorgeous common spaces and the safest, most walkable communities in the world, the most culturally expressive, joyous, where people like are intergenerational and they grow up with their family and their true mentors, like all these good things. So I came back and I just, for the first time, I could see my reality because I'd, I'd been in all these other places. I now had a kind of a stereoscopic vision. I was like, wow, I see that we've literally designed all of our problems. I felt like it was the cruelest joke ever. I was like standing in a neighborhood, typical American neighborhood without a single public square anywhere. And I was like, of course we don't talk to each other. And yet this place where pathways converge in all the villages in the world, that place is where people's lives come together. And then there's a commons where everyone flows in and out of the space and the organic, like they don't, those people don't have to talk about building community. They don't need um, a freaking, you know, block watch. They don't need a, a phone tree. They don't need a brownout in order to come outside and talk to each other. They live their lives in the streets. Like Shakespeare's whole theater of the life, theater of life plays out. They're on stage all the time in their own lives. They are living characters, not living in isolation. So I came back from that context and I was like completely free to break law, the law. I walked up to this old lady's house that I never bothered to talk to my whole life. And she like looks at me seven years after last time she saw me ignore her. And she's like, what do you want? And I was like, okay, I've gone through a lot of change and I want to know what help you need. And she's like, are you serious? She's like, I need a lot of help. I'm poor and I don't have any children and I haven't been able to paint my house since 1966. And I was like, let's paint your house. And by the end of that day, we had built the first little 24-hour self-service solar-powered tea station on her corner. Like, that's the first thing we did. We made a place to share tea, a little pump thermos. Oh, my God. And then over the weekend, I mean, and then, because I wasn't afraid of people anymore, because I'd been in all these villages, I just stood, I went up and down the street knocking on doors. And I was like, do you know Anne-Marie down on the corner? And some people were like, well, yeah, old lady. Other people had no idea who she was. And people had lived there for 20 years. They didn't even know who she was. So I was like unlocking the isolation. I went around knocking on doors knowing we're all isolated and that they didn't know it, that it was just normal. So I said, there's an old lady down on the corner who hasn't been able to paint her house for three decades. And I'm painting her house this weekend. You want to help? And people are like, sure, I've got a brush. I've got a pressure washer. I've got primer. Like everybody wanted to help. Like, this is one of the crazy things. Everybody really does want to help, but they don't even know how to ask for help and they don't know how to talk or listen. Like Americans supposedly can only listen for 15 seconds by on average. So I just not, went up and down the streets knocking. All these people came out of their houses and we painted, we set up floodlights and we painted until it was time to go to bed. And then all these neighbors were feeding us. And, we, and this is how it can start in any damn neighborhood in the whole land. So we painted her house over the weekend. We built that tea station. And the next thing that happened on this other corner, Brian, the drag, dragster mechanic, some of these stories are so hilarious. We wanted to put in a little place for books on his corner. And we knocked on his door. I knocked on his door and he said, no way. You know, I'm not interested in what you guys are doing. Forget it. So then I walked back over to the house my family house on the on the northwest corner 
And there was this gorgeous woman living there. Now, this is a story that some people might not appreciate, but Emily loved to run around in a bikini in the yard. She was just fearless and she was very beautiful and whatever, whatever was going on there. And I came back and she's like, well, did he say yes? And I said, um, no, I don't think it's happening. And she said, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> and she walked over <laughs> across diagonally across the intersection and she knocked on his door. <laughs> And he came outside. And five minutes later, she walked back and she's like, okay, you can put it in. You can build your little. That's the story of the first little free library in the world, officially. The first little free library. And if, it, if anybody needs verification, I can give them articles on this little books thing. But it was built by two little kids, two little foster kids, Timmy and Siobhan, and Emily Bride's Brideswell, I think, was her last name. She's the one who got it to happen on that corner, and we made it out of all these deconstruct, out of all this demolition um, that was happening in the neighborhood from gentrification. We took windows and boards, and we built that little, little, little. little we called it a book station, but it was the first little free library, and it was the thing that the folks from Madison came and saw that inspired them to create the organization, littlefreelibrary.org. Anyway, every one of the corners started to fill up with all these little interactive features and they were all illegal. Like now they're not illegal. <laughs> all of them are, to, you can you can just do them. They're free. They're, you, you, you actually are automatically permitted. And even though the city doesn't know that you've done it, you can just do it and you, and you have an automatic mythological permit and you're automatically insured in case anything goes wrong like that's how cool our municipality has gotten like for everybody who's like oh no portland oregon what's happening um yeah what's happening is people are coming from the cold interior to the west coast fleeing the economic you know dis distress and they're coming to the west coast so first of all they're coming from all over the place it's not portlanders that are the only ones out on the streets and then uh, the real story of this place, besides the fact that we've got a huge black guy from the Trump administration attacking us and kidnapping people and disappearing them for days and then releasing them beat up in the streets, like that was what was happening. The real story of Portland, Oregon, is that we have been driving the process of change from inside of our communities and innovating madly and creating bridges and linkages vertically through the inf infrastructure of the system throughout the entire political spectrum and horizontally at every level. So we're an incredibly creative community that can do almost anything we set our minds to. And I think that's why we attracted the ire of the Trump administration, because we were literally out in the streets showing our democratic, no, on our democratic, like basically our protest culture is an, is an incredible um, expression of of you know an active engaged citizenry of democracy and uh I, i've literally wondered my whole life after one innovation after another i've been wondering what is going to what's going to happen once somebody decides they don't like this democratic experiment that's happening because it is attracting attention from all over the world people come in here all the time to try to learn our, what is the secret of our success. And then we get attacked in this way. 
streets are filled with tear gas and people are fleeing downtown and the police are, you know, anyway, you know the story. Uh, so the real pro the real story of Portland, Oregon is, is the stuff that's not being told, which is happening everywhere. We're like, we're still the tree we're the city with the most trees per capita because we plant trees madly. We have the most nonprofit organizations of all cities and the most coffee houses, the most public spaces, the greatest gigantic urban spaces and urban wetlands and wildlife sanctuaries, the greatest public square in the country. Like, I'm sorry, I'm like extolling. It's like I'm from the Chamber of Commerce here, but like, I love this place and I've been watching its story of, of it reclaiming its destiny from, you know, the deeper, the, the, the historical story of white supremacy, which was, you know, had taken hold here so, so powerfully for a long time. And that has been just reinvented entirely from within. So I think we attracted some repressive initiative from the outside in the form of Trump and his unaccountable um, thugs. Well, and part of that uh, fostering, you know, your local culture that you're talking about, I think was uh, really kicked in by the city repair project stuff. And at one point, the you know, before the outer forces came down on you, the local police were sent out to put down these precos. But <laughs> the police loved them. They were sent out to stop us. And once they got there, they said, they literally said, the guy in charge of the entire southeast precinct of the city, this whole quadrant was Ed Riddell's responsibility and ed showed up at what we were doing and he said you know what i'm paid to stop stuff which is bad but not stuff which is good and he's like i'm not stopping this this is wonderful because for one thing when he got there and we were painting the streets and building all these things on the corners we didn't run away like we stood right there because it's our neighborhood we actually were feeling so powerful and confident not just because we were like a bunch of individuals standing right where we lived, but because we all felt connected and that what we were doing was to help all of each other. This is In Nature. This is Juliana Daly. Today, I will be talking about the Eastern Prairie Fringe Orchid. The Eastern Prairie Fringed Orchid, also known as the Prairie White Fringed Orchid, is a rare species of orchid native to North America. It has been federally threatened since 1989 under the Endangered Species Act of 1973. The orchid is a perennial plant that grows from an underground tuber. Flowering begins from late June to early July, and the blooms last seven to 10 days. You can see the blossoms rise just above the height of the surrounding grasses and sedges. The orchid has a single upright leafy stem with a vertical flower cluster or spike. The spike has five to 40 creamy white flowers and each flower has a three-part fringed tip. The hawk moth is its main pollinator and deer are its greatest risk. You can find them in a wide variety of habitats, including wetlands and prairies. They require full sun. They currently occur in eight states, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, 
Maine, Michigan, Missouri, Ohio, Wisconsin, and possibly Virginia. Most eastern prairie-fringed orchid populations have been lost through conversion of habitat to cropland and pasture. Drainage and development now pose the greatest threat. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallek. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Take an intro to hydroponics class at the Allison Jukebox Community Center on Saturday, November 4th from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Learn an alternative way of gardening using water rather than soil. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. There will be a night owl hike at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Saturday, November the 4th from 9 to 10.30 p.m. A naturalist will accompany you as you learn how to spot and listen for common Indiana owl species. Meet at the boathouse. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. Take the Elkinsville History Tour at Monroe Lake on Wednesday, November 8th, beginning at 1 p.m. This will be a driving and walking tour through the quote-unquote town that was. Meet at the Story Inn in Story, Indiana. Sign up at bit.ly slash Elkinsville 2023. The Sierra Club Hoosier Chapter will gather at the Hitz Rodahamel Nature Preserve near Nashville, Indiana on Thursday, November the 9th from 9 to 11.30 a.m. for a hike through the preserve. Join the naturalist at Spring Mill State Park for an owl pellet dissection workshop on Saturday, November 11th from 11 a.m. to noon. You will dissect an owl pellet and use a chart to help determine what animal the owl ate. Please register at sbelt at dnr.in.gov.
And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Juliana Daly. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noel Harehusky Schneider. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Harehusky Schneider produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallak. And this is Eco Report. <laughs>